Good morning, I'm Julian Shung. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Dear God, we come and as we watch again these children leave, we ask you to bless them and the teachers who so faithfully serve you and us by caring for them. We pray as we are your children that you would meet with us as we come to study again the Gospel of Mark. During this season of Lent, we are aware particularly of our need for you. Many of us are doing different disciplines to remind us of that need. And so again, we ask you on this uh, a feast day, a Sunday, that you would remind us of your love and the, the way you meet that need. We lift up the burdens we carry and pray again that you would speak through your words with me as just your vessel. In your name, amen. Amen. Good morning. My name is Dean Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here, and so glad to welcome you. We are in Mark 13. You just heard that read. If you have a Bible, you might want to open that up. If you have a hard copy Bible or a soft copy Bible, we've been going through the back half of Mark during the season of Lent, and this morning, we finish a really important section in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember a few weeks ago, we said that Jesus had entered into the temple and was in the temple, Mark 11, Mark 12, Mark 13. And so the last few weeks, we've been in the temple as Jesus has faced head-on the temple establishment, and there's been this whole series of teachings and conflicts and controversies as Jesus shook up the political and spiritual roots of Israel. The temple represented the center of Israel spiritually and politically and historically. The Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple, was really the place where God was meeting with Israel to send them out into the world. And Jesus has been there, as we said a few weeks ago, because the temple establishment was corrupt and had to be turned over and torn down. And at the beginning of chapter 13, he is, he's literally physically leaving the temple. It's often called, chapter 13, verse 1, a Janus verse, a doorway, because he's, behind him is the temple, and he's moving east to the Mount of Olives. He's physically leaving the temple, 
And he's about to begin the longest teaching discourse in the entire book of Mark. Chapter 13 is the longest set of teaching we have that Jesus gives in the entire book. If you read Ezekiel 10 and 11, there's a prophetic uh, word about how the Messiah is gonna come and God's gonna come. And as he comes, the Messiah is gonna leave the temple. The presence of God is actually physically gonna leave the temple and move east and wait at the east gate and then go to the Mount of Olives and teach. And that's what's happening. That long ago prophecy is coming true in the words and actions of Jesus here in Mark 13. It's pretty exciting if you have that frame of reference, but it's very, very deep teaching he's about to give. And the teaching set off by this seemingly innocent comment of one of his disciples as they leave the temple, this amazing architectural structure. One of the disciples says, you know, Father, teacher, rabbi, look at this. Look at this. This is amazing. Look at these stones. Look, look at how amazing our temple is. And that, te- that statement is true. I mean, again, we've talked a few weeks ago. This is a, a 35-acre establishment. It took up 40% of the city of Jerusalem. You could have fit 12 football fields in the temple area. 12. It's one of the most significant architectural marvels of the ancient world. So what he says is right. And so you would be surprised, I would be surprised if Jesus said, yeah, that's great, and guess what? All those stones are gonna be torn down. Some of the stones are 30, 40 feet high. All this gonna be destroyed. It'd be like you took somebody into D.C. visiting for the first time and they were marveling at the Capitol. Say, this is an amazing building. This is such a beautiful structure. And you said, yeah, that's right, but you know, that's all going to be torn down and destroyed. And if you said that to them or we were with Jesus and you heard somebody say that, the questions that would be begged are things like, when's that going to happen? How will we know what's coming? When will this magnificent architectural marvel fall? I can't imagine any of those stones moving, let alone falling and being destroyed and wiped out. And that that introduction sets Jesus up for this teaching when he's gonna focus on the answers to those questions and on two parts of what we call the gospel story, right? We often say the gospel is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And redemption is gonna begin with Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, but that timeline's gonna extend. And restoration isn't until the very end when he returns. And this is an important text because we as Christians believe in that good news. Jesus is redeeming the world. Even now, 200, or excuse me, 2,000 years after his resurrection, through us and with us and his spirit and so many things the church does. But there's also a promise that he's gonna come back at his restoration and then things will really finally be fully made new. This biblical principle of like full shalom, full joy, full thriving. So this passage is pretty important and it's been discussed and looked at for centuries as people have tried to parse out. What was Jesus saying? What is happening? Because like Peter, James, John, and Andrew, we all have questions about when's that gonna happen and what's it mean? So I wanna highlight five major points from Jesus' words here. I wanna walk through and just get, pull out five things from this whole chapter because it's so important. And my, my real goal is to give you practical encouragement and hope from this text. So let's go. First, Jesus' dominant theme For his disciples, you and me, in this passage is for us to be on guard and pursue faithfulness to him in our present situations today. 
how you and I live today, when you leave Madison High School this afternoon, hold fast to the good news of God loving you and Jesus dying for you. His primary concern is that you and I take that seriously right now. Don't get lost and distracted with things like timelines and guesses and world events. They're important. We live in the world. We love the world, but we're not to get distracted in such a way that we would not be on guard or on watch. Just a few verses before in chapter 12, he had stressed the two greatest things we can do, love God, love your neighbor, do that now. That'd be one way to summarize what Jesus is saying in this chapter. Share the good news I have brought. This is the most important lesson you and I can take away from Mark 13. It's so important, it's actually gonna be two of my five points. Because he makes it so often, I thought, well, I should at least follow Jesus' instruction and do it more than once. So that's just the first one. Be on guard and pursue faithfulness to him in your present situation. Second, then, in this passage, Jesus encourages his people to hold fast and love him with what I'm gonna call deep theological term of the Grover Timeline. Now, how many of you ever watched Sesame Street? All right, so Sesame Street, the cookie monster is known for what? Cookies, eating cookies. The count is known for counting. Oscar's known for being, thank you for the sound effects. Appreciate that on the count. Oscar's known for being what? Happy or a grouch, right? And Oscar's known for near and far. You can go online and watch on YouTube. Oscar does this thing. He's teaching us what it means to be near and far. Remember, if you remember that clip, it's a short clip. Oscar starts at the front of a stage, and he's saying, this is near, and then he runs to the back and says, far. And then to make sure, yeah, I watched it this week. He comes back, he does it again to make sure you and I understand Grover, Super, that's Super Grover, for those of you who are real fans, right? He's got a cape you can't see. Super Grover teaching you and I that there are near and far situations in the world. And what Jesus is doing in this text is giving you and I in the church, in church history, a Grover timeline of near and far. Near, because between when Jesus is speaking these words in 33 AD and 70 AD is when most of what he's talking about is gonna happen. Most of what Jesus is describing here is what's gonna happen to Israel between his spoken words and the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem after a long civil war with Rome in 70 AD when the temple will be destroyed and burned. What his disciples were asking, the context was, when is this temple, the physical temple, gonna be destroyed? And so Jesus is answering that particular question. He uses a phrase like this present generation. What he means there is the disciples who are with him those who are alive then, that generation, this will happen in their lifetime. Between now and then, the church, this new church that Jesus has moved out of the temple and will move to the cross to inaugurate is gonna grow and spread and take root throughout the Roman world. The physical temple will no longer be the center of God's good news, but the life of the people the church found in Acts and then that spread all over the world, will have taken place and gone on. The church is growing in that time. So there's a near timeline, right? Near, Grover. But there's also a far timeline because these acts and what the church is doing and the difficulties the church is gonna go through is a foreshadowing of what would affect the church of Jesus down through history all the way to you and me. There are a few verses that especially highlight what it might look like when Jesus comes back as the Son of Man. That's particularly in the end of the chapter. Again, this gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Redemption will begin at the cross in the empty tomb, but there will be a gap in time. 
between that near and the far of Jesus' returning to bring full restoration. Jesus is saying, and he says to himself, only the Father knows the true date of when that's gonna happen. The angels don't know, and Jesus doesn't know, and you and I don't know. I was thinking this week, what if I could tell you, what if I told you I know the exact date when Jesus will return in two years? That the gift to you this morning being here at this church is that you're gonna know. Think about the the polarizing temptations you would have. On the one hand, I think some of us might feel like, wow, I I got two years, I really need to get my act together over these two years. Jesus is coming back, I I need to do so much for him in those two years, I wonder what I could do. But some of us might feel like, in, 11, in one year and 11 months, I gotta get my act together. But until then, Jesus isn't coming back. How beneficial would it be for you to know the exact date which the church has spent a lot of time and energy trying to find over the years? So, be on guard. Know the Grover timelines. The third thing, hold fast to the gospel and loving Jesus in these near and far timelines because they will take place during difficult and dire times. Holding fast to the gospel in these sets of timelines will be difficult because it's gonna be dire. If you read a little bit about the history from Jesus' words to 70 AD, you're gonna see terrible things happen and Jesus' words do come true. The Jewish historian Josephus lists several false messiahs between Jesus and the fall of Jerusalem. It's a pattern over and over. And then there's some that come after the fall of Jerusalem. There are wars, as Jesus said, throughout the Roman Empire. There's one in 36 AD in part of Rome, the Roman Empire. There's another in 36, 37. There's a huge civil war when the Emperor Nero dies and commits suicide in 68 AD. The entire fabric of the Roman Empire at that point is stretched and almost broken. There are earthquakes. There's the big earthquake in Pompeii in 62 AD. Anybody ever heard of that earthquake? There's actually an earthquake in Jerusalem in 67 AD. There's famines, particularly one in 46 AD. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. These things all happen between Jesus' words and Mark's writing and Jerusalem falling. It's so bad that the early church assumes Jesus must be coming back. They're asking the same question. When's he coming? I bet he's coming. Let's live like he's coming. It's so bad in Thessalonica that Paul writes a letter to a church there, First and Second Thessalonians, because they are so, some, a sect of that church, a piece of that church, has so decided they know when Jesus is coming that they've just sort of checked out a life. We don't need to be good workers. We don't need to care about how we use our bodies. We don't need to do whatever because Jesus is coming back soon. This is late 50s, early 60s AD. Not now. This is a church struggling with this since Jesus' words. Oh, if we know when he's coming back, how are we gonna live? Because these times are hard and they do look like echoes and foreshadowing. So many bleak signs. And don't those themes sound familiar? False teachers and heresy, international affairs that are so turbulent and disturbing, persecution for our brothers and sisters or ourselves for our faith. Again, Jesus is warning us not just of the near timeline, but of the far timeline. Because it is tempting to read world events. If I lived in 410 AD during the sack of Rome and I was in Rome, I might have assumed, like a lot of Rome did, that Jesus was returning. 
I might have thought that St. Augustine writing The City of God at that time was a bad idea because who was going to be around to read it? I might have assumed during the Black Death of the 14th century when a plague spread from China to India to Syria to Persia to Egypt into Europe killed 20 million people in Europe. I might have assumed that was so bad that it must mean Jesus is coming back. I might have assumed as an Anglican in the great plague of the 1660s that Jesus was coming back then because 100,000 people died in London in 18 months. For sure, during World War I or World War II, I would have had a thought or two about it. Or if I lived in the Holy Land and all the terrible wars that have swept through there over the centuries. Heck, I was alive and got married eight days after Y2K. Some of us remember that. Oh no, what's gonna happen? Because we're frail, finite, and apt to faint, and these are hard times. And holding fast to the gospel in a grover near and far away is not easy. But Jesus' people have thrived in those hard times through the centuries. The church has spread. There are men and women around the world and children praying to God right now. There are people who've done it before us who are going to sleep that already did it in their morning. Fourth, in those timelines and holding fast to Jesus in the gospel, not only will there be dire times, but there will be difficult consequences. Difficult consequences. And you heard these particularly in the verses that you heard read this morning by Julian. There will be and have been plenty of times the church has not been in favor politically. There will be and have been plenty of times the church has not been in favor socially. Your neighbors won't just think you're nuts. They won't like you or will be in opposition to you, seen as a threat. In fact, the people of Jesus will face all kinds of threats. There's the internal threats, like, again, false messiahs or false teaching. And there's external threats, persecution, wars, famines, international affairs. And even worse, and maybe harder we hear in these verses, there will be familial threats that families will turn against each other, children against parents or against one another. And I find this to be, frankly, the most painful news of the entire chapter. And I know some of you have walked this. You've held on to Jesus while your family pushed you away or mocked you or considered you a fool. This is a commentator named James Edwards on this text. The breakup of families thus attacks and jeopardizes life and faith at the most intimate and formative level. And I don't think you need me to read that. If you've lived that, you could tell me how that cuts right to the bone. Dean, you mean to say someone could follow Jesus, love Jesus, and their son could turn against them in 63 AD? Yes. Dean, you mean to say someone could follow Jesus, love Jesus, and their mom could turn against them in 1991? Yes. Dean, you mean to say someone could follow Jesus, love Jesus, and their kids could flee the faith and consider their parents fools in 2023? Yes. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. That's what can happen. And that's super hard to hear and watch. 
I was reminded this week of a family friend that we had dinner with a few years ago, and he's describing a really difficult year of external threats, work threats, vocational threats, friends who betrayed him. But he, he said and highlighted, you know, my kids, my adult kids are loving Jesus, and that is, it's made everything okay. He's, and he said, because I think God knew I couldn't take breakdown within the camp of my family. And I remember that clearly it stuck with me because 15 years later I could call it so fast as I read this passage. We have some friends, some family friends who are doing and experiencing this right now. Have a child who said, you mean you would choose Jesus over me? And they said, yes, we would. What is Jesus getting at here? He's saying this good news is so important. My father loves the world so much and I so am willing to die for that world. But you should know it's gonna be offensive when I do it. It's gonna be an affront. And yet I'm gonna ask you as my people to be the new kingdom of heaven. I'm gonna encourage you to still love me and your neighbor to spread this good news. Even though you too might be persecuted and despised and mocked and imprisoned or thrown out of your family on my name. So, and with that echo, I wanted to give my last point and some hope and encouragement. Again, Jesus has one dominant theme for his people in this chapter. And it is to be on guard and be watched and be faithful in the present. And the promise there is because he is with us. He is with us. The good news of Psalm 91 that Jesus knew, and if we'd read a different translation, the translation we had said he will keep you. Other translations say he will guard you. The good news is that God is guarding you first. Before you have to be on guard, God is guarding you and me. Jesus encourages us to be on guard six times in this chapter. Verse five, verse nine, verse 23, verse 33, verse 35, verse 37. Six times. He's exhorting us to faithful discipleship in the present and to promise us that he is with us. It's why he's so excited in the Gospel of John in the upper room to tell them the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is not gonna be in the temple anymore. He's gonna live and reside in you. I'm asking you to be on guard. I know I'm sending you out into a difficult time and dire circumstances, but I'm sending you with the Holy Spirit who will guide you and God will guard you. Again, six times. You should memorize just these numbers. How often does Jesus want me to be faithful in the present? Well, six times, five, nine, 23, 33, 35, 37. But you should memorize Psalm 91 first because he will give his angels charge over you. Love God, love your neighbor, be the kingdom of heaven, be a Jew and Gentile new nation, but know that I am with you. There is one really subtle and beautiful piece of hope and encouragement in these verses. Johnny got up and read 
um, as he started the service from the very last few verses, this parable Jesus told about being on watch. Jesus says in verse 35, therefore stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Let me do that again. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. That's four watches of the night. Remember, Jesus is speaking to just four Jewish disciples. Peter's gonna tell that story to Mark. Jesus is telling four watches. How much, do you know how many watches of the night were in a Jewish understanding of the evening? Three. Jesus is using four with a singularly Jewish audience. That's weird. Why is he doing that? Because that church, that new church where he's leaving the temple and he's gonna go inaugurate something new is gonna be Jew and Gentile. So they're gonna need to know and hear this parable in four watches of the night. So he told the disciples who told Mark, Jesus told the story with four watches of the night. And by the time Mark wrote this down, the church was Jew and Gentile. So as serious as these words are is as hopeful as these words are. Because before 70 AD, it's already a four watch of the night church. That's how deeply serious God is about guarding you and me as we go and guard and watch the faith. So I want to close in prayer, and I, I just want to pray over you because I know some of us really are in dire situations where keeping faithful is hard. And I think some of you particularly have family where this conflict is so intense, either people pushing against or seeing you a certain way, or they have, you have chosen to follow one way and they chose another way, and there's a rupture. And like that quote, it is, that is at the bone. That is at the granular part of being faithful to the Lord. So let's pray. Dear God, I thank you even that we can stand this morning and look at your word and worship you because there are men, women, and children who have been faithful to your exhortation here for 2,000 years. That these four men, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, took this story to heart with the other disciples and they spread this good news in the midst of persecution. And your church has been faithful. For sure, we've dropped the ball lots of times, but there has been faithful to keep spreading and sharing this good news. We ask that we would be faithful in the same way, that we would push back and into the darkness of the world that's around us, that we would bring hope even this week as we love you and our neighbor. And Lord, we particularly together lift up any of us here who have watched and tasted this, the rupture of their family because they have held fast to you and been seen as a fool or been even betrayed. Would you comfort them and give them courage that you guard them and keep them, just like Psalm 91 says, that they are not alone, just as you promised in this chapter that the Holy Spirit will be with them. Would you show them your favor even as we gather together today? In your holy name, amen.